you've dedicated yourself to helping people and uh, if you're not helping everyone you could help, you're kind of clashing with your own value system. Welcome back, Change Talk listeners, and Happy New Year. Today's episode, we're going to be talking with a Bridges to Change leader. We're also going to be talking with him and his equity pod, and we'll talk a little bit about what that means. But welcome to the show, Pecos. Thanks for having me, Anna. What do you do at Bridges to Change, Pecos? I'm a clinical supervisor for an intensive outpatient program in Washington County. What does that mean? Uh, intensive outpatient's a, a tricky level of care. It's not regular outpatient. People are getting 16 to 18 hours of treatment, and that's at our office, and then they live in housing uh, that's also provided for being in our treatment. So it's not only um, clinical treatment services, but it's really paired with housing to make sure that people get on the right track as they're kind of starting this new life. Correct, but it's not residential. They're not monitored all the time, so they have a, an outpatient living situation. Nice. So, Pecos, how long have you been with Bridges to Change? Uh, it's just been six months now. So you're new, mm-hmm. newer. Um, and what has been your impression so far about diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Um, well, I can tell that it's a you know more than just a stated mission with the company. I think that um, they've taken a long, hard look at themselves and saw where the need was and and put some things into action because I think you can only do the contemplation thing for so long and then you need to start thinking about what your actions are going to be. So it sounds like you've seen not only this, you know, organizational awareness building, but also some planning and some action within what that means. Yeah, I've seen a a concerted effort to get people together to get different voices uh, heard and then take a plan of action, like us being here today doing a podcast about it. Why is DEI important to you in your role? Uh, In my role, it's important because anyone can end up uh, enrolling in our treatment and being in one of our houses, and we need to work hard to have a program that, without having a one-size-fits-all approach, uh, takes the needs of individuals into account and is able to meet those needs as often as possible. So making sure that we're not just providing a blanket program, but really tailoring what our services are doing and thinking about what what different communities we're, we're targeting and serving and how we're doing that differently depending on people's needs. Exactly. Yeah, people... Um come to us with varying life experiences from various uh, socioeconomic standards um, and got into their addiction from different ways. So we need to take that into account as, as we do drug and alcohol treatment. So Pecos, can you talk about what leadership has done in terms of forming equity pods and tell me what those equity pods are? I'm really interested in hearing about what that means. So leadership got together uh, supervisors and other people in leadership roles um, and we've met and had our own kind of informational um, over oversight so people brought the the concept to us and and what kind of actions we could take and then we broke into groups um, to discuss individual needs and things that we could do to further the the movement so it's different groups within leadership mm-hmm. and it might your group might 
be people that you don't ever really see outside of this equity pot or outside of leadership because we all do a lot of different things. So it sounds like it's a lot of different leaders coming together to think about what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean and how do we continue to advance it across the organization? Yeah, that's exactly it. I think, you know, pulling people together um, to discuss their various needs, what their populations they work with are needing. So it's reporting back and, and as often as possible, we're going to our people who are delivering um, services to clients and clients themselves because I think that's where the real movement happens on people's needs getting met. It's going to the people who have the needs and finding out what what's missing from their service. And I think that's so important because what you talked about was Bridges to Change serves so many different types of people and in so many different types of communities. We're, we're in so many different counties across the state. And to think about what does equity, diversity, and inclusivity mean to someone in a different program might be very different to what your program looks like. And I think it's really cool that you're, especially in your pod, thinking about how do we talk with people? How do we talk with people who are working with clients differently to get a different result? What's the name of your equity pod? Because equity pods have different names and themes. What is what is the name of your group? So it was a really long day of training, and I'm glad they gave us uh, fidget toys and, and themes to do. So we got our uh, our best sculptors and, and thinkers on the case, and we crafted this little uh, purple owl. And so we're called the Purple Power Owls. And, you know, I think an owl represents wisdom. We're trying to be uh, wiser and, and more proactive in our work. Nice. And it just looked cool. It does look cool. So can you tell me about some of the makeup of your pod? Who's in your pod? What does that look like? Um, how have you you all been working together so far? Um, well, I, I think they're a great group of people, and I think that we had very candid and frank discussions. Um, let's see. I think there are uh, two males in the, in the group. Um, the rest of the group is female. Uh, all of us are Caucasian, I believe. Um, so we kind of started in there, um, you know, talking about how uh, white people can be contributing and, and what they have to look at as, as they do DEI work. Why do you think it's so hard for white people to talk about racism specifically? And then I want to broaden that to DEI work in general, because mm-hmm. sometimes um, people are really hesitant to talk about these things. The best way I could put it is I think that um, most people don't identify as being racist. And I think that it's hard for them to talk about the bigger picture context stuff because they really want to rule out them individually being thought of as being racist. So, you know, there can be institutional racism and and systems that you benefited from and not been so proactively discriminating against other people. And so that that initial but I'm a good person uh, thing is really hard to get away from to talk about. You're, yeah, you're a good person and you're probably not actively discriminating against people and, and yet there's still institutional racism and, and people who are being marginalized and oppressed and you not, might not be an active contributor but we always have to look at how we can stop being passive contributors. What does institutionalized racism mean? So when you get away from the kind of individual person-to-person level and, and smaller discussions, uh, this would be economic institutions, school systems, um, city planning, Uh, You know, really a lot of what people are starting to become aware of how um, the end of slavery and and 
Jim Crow laws came to be the modern prison system where you know minorities were overrepresented in that population and, and marginalized in various other ways. For further reading, uh, Stokely Carmichael's probably, that's how I came across the term. And so it's systems working together to continue to benefit white people, um, even though people, like you said, might not be overtly racist. They're still benefiting as white people from these institutions that have continued to work together to maintain the status quo. Mm -hmm. And that's how you could be a passive contributor. So you could say, I don't have these like conscious moments of accessing white privilege, but uh, the very nature of white privilege would be not having to think about white privilege. You know, if you, if you have a traffic stop and you're like, the worst thing that can happen to me is I'm going to get a ticket. You know, you're not thinking about being shot and killed or something like that. So that experience of white privilege, how do we translate that or how do we connect that to people who have had really difficult childhoods, upbringing, who are, who are mm. systemically challenged right now as white people who maybe have less access to resource? How, how do we talk about that as still being white and privileged? Well, first of all, you can just honor a person on an individual level and say, you know, yes, you had bad socioeconomic standards. You may have had bad uh, police interactions. You know, you may have had a really hard time. And yet that doesn't mean that the institutional racism doesn't benefit white people for the most part. Kind of honoring their individual piece of it and still saying, you know, by the standard of that society, you still have a better chance to um not be discriminated against. Talk to me a little bit about what it's been like for your your equity pod to talk about these things, not only as leaders, but as as white people, as people in different places in their, you know, awareness journey. What has that been like? Well, that's why I think we had a, an awesome opening conversation because I think some of that tension just got brought up right away. And, and that's always, you know, in a bigger picture, that's always how we're going to be able to work our way out of this. So we were talking about uh, phrases people used to use that were no longer in vogue and, and things you couldn't say. And so the initial conversation, and, and this is really a valuable place to be, is people are like, I feel really awkward and I feel like I can't say anything. And I don't think, what we wanted to refocus on is that we don't want people to think that that's the essence of DEI work. It is not for you to be afraid to talk. Um, I think that our way through it is going to be to really sit with that awkwardness, to get more awkward in some ways and say like, look, I always talked this way or I always thought this way. And now I'm starting to hear people say that doesn't work for them. And I'm just open to talking in a different way. It doesn't really cost me that much, you know? So I, th I thought the conversation was really good. How do you think people move through that, that awkwardness or even feeling like, oh my gosh, I made a huge mistake, or I didn't say the right thing, um, or I'm around people who know maybe a lot more than I do, or feel like I, they know more than I do about this, and still move forward. I think it's, it's setting an intention to be uncomfortable and to be wrong. Uh, not to go out of your way to be uncomfortable and be wrong, but just know that that's part of the growth process. So there's this continuum of awareness and you have to realize you're never gonna fully arrive because humanity is gonna keep changing and its, and its needs, wants, and what diversity looks like is gonna keep changing. So 
um, just acknowledge how awkward it's going to be. And, and if you lean into that and, and make it overt instead of something you're running from, you end up taking its power away because you're able to say, look, I'm, I'm going to be wrong. I'm, I'm going to say the wrong thing. It's about being uh, teachable, you know. So let's say, um, you know, someone who's affected by a phrase or a term or something or, or being mis mis uh, misidentified with their gender or not using the right pronouns, to be open to being like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in the learning process with that and your information is really important to me and, you know, I'm sorry I messed up and just do better. And then be prepared to slip again and mess up and then do better just to keep working on it continuously. And I think what's important about, you know, what, what struck me is that it's always changing. We're learning things now that, like you said, looked very different 50 years ago. Um, and I think that that idea or that concept or that realization of things are, we're never going to get there, we're never going to arrive is a hard thing to grasp. It's a hard thing to sit with. Um, because I think as people, we want to make sh we want this structure. We want to know I'm going to start this and I'm, this is how I'm, I know I'm going to end this. Um, and equity work is not that. And people change and communities change. Safe. No, yeah, it's, really not safe, so. it's really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think it's so powerful that Bridges has really put into practice this space for leaders to practice with each other and lead with each other because it's hard to move forward if our leaders aren't there with us. Um, how have you brought this back to your staff or how, how has your pod talked about this with the larger Bridges community? Well, I think that the the agency in reality is the sum of its parts. So, you know, this for leadership to say this is something that we are dedicated to, uh, you know, for even small things like posters to be up, start the conversation, start the conversation and especially double down on that thing of like this is going to be awkward. Um, I think our pod brought up we don't know what we don't know. And so once you give people that allowance, be like, but we're going to learn and we're going to learn together. Some people will take great strides. Some people will really struggle with it. We're going to support each other and we're going to get through it. It's really about setting an intention right now. You know, I think like the contemplative awareness stage has been happening for some time. And what's um, what gives me a sense of optimism as a leader is, is I feel like we're being empowered and asked to say, what are the actual changes? How's it going to show up in our work? How are we going to see more diversity in our treatment programs? How are we going to see more diversity in our staff? What have we been missing with hiring practices and everything else? So, um, yeah, that's how I see it rippling through the agency. So that idea of we don't know what we don't know, but we're going to try to find out. We're going to make mistakes. Um, we're going to try to be teachable along the way is a lot of work. It is. And I think you have to, at some point, get way past your comfort zone. Because every time you mess with your comfort zone, you get a bigger comfort zone. And I think what's often missing from diversity conversations is actual diversity. I think that uh, people who aren't getting our full service or who may be marginalized or left out of our services, their voice needs to be added to the conversation. How did we, how are we missing you? How can we get you in and how can we help you? Yeah, absolutely. And how can, how can you trust us to support you? Um, and what I thought when you were saying that was 
to be heard. The first, you know, one of those first steps is to be heard and to to acknowledge that we don't know what we don't know yet. Can you talk about what white guilt means? I think it's a concept. What people are often trying to avoid is they'll say, you know, to my knowledge, my family didn't own slaves or something like that. Or again, I don't feel like I consciously benefit from from white privilege. And so um, a feeling of being put upon, like I'm asked to feel bad because certain things worked out for me or I didn't have certain struggles for being white. Um, I don't know. I, I think that a person has to kind of live with themselves at the end of the day, so I can't, I can't say what, what that spectrum of guilt uh, feels like for people. I, I don't personally feel it. Um, How do you think it impacts diversity work? I think or it does can, it? Does it can it shut down the conversation sometimes. I mean, again, like we're we're losing sometimes the the greater work we'd be doing because we're we're battling through the defensiveness. We brought it up before, you know, just because you were white does not mean you did not suffer uh, abuse or socioeconomic standards or, or, or incarceration the or prison yeah. system or anything. It's ju- it's just saying like, even though those things are in place, there's still institutional racism, which um, on the whole uh, tends to benefit the people it's benefited for a long time. There's a haves and a have-nots. There's economic things in place. And that's why it's institutional. It's been for a long time. The people who've had money have had money for a long time. Um, you know, city planning, places that were broken down and, and, and considered urban or ghetto were have been that way. And then they get gentrified and then there's new ghetto and then people move there and, and people are kind of constantly being pushed out. How do you think white fragility feeds into people particularly white people feeling defensive around equity work, diversity work, or thinking about what inclusivity means? Um, again, I, I think it's getting kind of froze on the, but I'm a good person uh, thing. And we lose a lot of the productive things when, you know, I just want to give people the benefit of the doubt. I already think you're a good person. <laughs> and uh, you may have benefited from kind of a horrible system for a, a long time. I think one thing that's like, really humbling about this you know especially as 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 a white person and and people need to just realize this like you could believe yourself to be you know higher up on the woke continuum or whatever but really you could also check out at any time and benefit from the system again unchecked and that's the thing you know i think for people to remember if you're an ally to marginalized people is that they can't like they couldn't turn it on and off like you could you could kind of disappear into regular white white norms if you wanted to and not get checked for it and and people live in a reality where they couldn't just dip in and out like that so i think that's a really important point that um people from different communities particularly marginalized communities don't get to turn off what makes them part of that community that's exactly it they live with the other day and so imagine if you live that every day and you got told about this you know post-racial society that we live in and stuff you're like well that's not my experience and then as you say that you know again it's it's all about opening the ears up to someone saying that's not my experience right you know people this is a basic human need to be seen heard and validated and you know i think in dei work again in our in our drug and alcohol treatment or housing that we provide is to um, make a conscious effort to expand uh, who's being seen and heard and, and having their voice heard and and uh, programs made for them. How does white guilt or this idea relate to white fragility and what does that mean? 
in my personal experience, I don't have this daily walking experience of white guilt and white fragility. Um, I grew up um, around a bunch of people who weren't white, so I, I don't. I don't really experience it every day. I, I couldn't really say. I, I think it shuts down conversations is the best way I could put it. You know, with white guilt, white fragility um, tend to shut down the expansive part of the conversation because there's a lot of time spent justifying, but I'm not, or my family didn't, or, um, you know, so, some idea of, like, I'm not contributing to the problem. So it sounds like white guilt and white fragility really come back to the person who is not experiencing oppression and not experiencing marginalization, kind of justifying where they fit within the community rather than thinking about how to open up the conversation and, and take in some learning or some awareness about what it means to not have their experience. Mm-hmm. That it just kind of stops yeah, at that yeah. point. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, I know, you know, when we were in school and we took multicultural counseling or anything, I remember in that particular class, uh, there were a group of white students who started to kind of wage a counter-protest or something and say, like, I feel like this class is is really picking on me and stuff like that, or saying, you know, white people are bad. And I don't think that's, you know, in any way, shape, or form the intention of DEI work, you know, just building awareness and understanding you benefited from systems. No one's asking you to feel bad about the systems that you benefited from or if being white, like, got you a leg up at some point. It's, it's like people just want basic acknowledgement of that. That's why I say, like, you know, if, if, if someone, if you're marginalized and someone tells you we live in a post-racial society or something like that, how that must feel, uh, we're not even making great strides in the work yet. I think, like... My guess is, and again, this is this is an assumption of someone who's not marginalized, you know, that people would just like it to be acknowledged to begin with. And then you could have the conversation about what's going to help and remedy the situation. I think that's really powerful. I think, you know, how do we as an organization get to a place where we can hear different voices? Well, I think that goes back to people who are delivering client services and clients themselves. And again, one of the hardest parts for the agency is that to really get the voice of the people you've been missing is hard because you've been missing them. So, you know, that awareness. I think that our um, our upcoming outreach team will, you know, training them and starting them on the right foot will, will make a big difference so that they're not out there, again, with subconscious biases, like looking for a certain type or person to serve, you know, that they really are out there finding uh, everyone who needs treatment and services. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think making sure that we are being intentional about how we're going forward. Um, and I think we are, I think we're, we're really, you know, as particularly within the leadership spectrum, thinking about things differently and trying to utilize time as a resource because to be intentional takes time. Um, and I definitely see, you know, today we have you and your equity pod here and that's leaders taking time out of their day to have a really important conversation that's going to be shared with the community about why this work is so critical. Diversity, equity, and inclusion work saves people's lives, particularly within the nonprofit sector. Um, It saves people's lives. If we do not reach out to different communities, we're not going to get different people in Mm -hmm. to be able to support them and help them and and in whatever way that means for them, right? Recovery means different things to different people, but this is truly life-saving work. And 
um, I think it's so important that we're spending time to to even have a conversation to talk about awareness. Well, I I think you you really just kind of hit everything there. It's it's a life or death issue. It's a public health issue, and and so when you change that conversation, you're not having this like. Uh, intellectual or scholarly kind of debate or conversation you're saying like you know people are dying out here behind not being seen and heard and we need to remedy that right away so it puts us in a state of of action but again thoughtful action because you know working at any agency you'll see sometimes people say something needs a response and you'll get a response but sometimes that response that's not uh, thought about is just a response so we need kind of thoughtful response conscious response and and everyone I, I'm glad that we're in different pods and that we meet uh, as a group because we need to kind of report back on what we've been experiencing since we brought up the conversation and also co- kind of come up with a standard of how are we going to know things are changing yeah how do we know we're doing anything mm-hmm. especially when there's no end goal Right. There's none of that. Um, you can't say, OK, I've, I've arrived now. Really, it takes this kind of circular processing of of checking in and, and doing the work and coming back and checking to see if it's working. Um, and like you said, if we don't have diversity at the table, we're not going to really get very far because we need different people and, and different experiences to drive where we're going. Yeah. And I think um, because my my background is treatment, I think that we're kind of like flowing through stages of change type stuff. You know, there's there's pre-contemplation. We didn't know there was a problem. There's contemplation. Hey, maybe we need to make some changes. Uh, preparation is kind of where I'd put us in, in the agency preparation, you know, in the hallway towards action. Um, and then and then we start to find that we've we've gotten new processes. But this is interesting because unlike the rest of the stages of change, we kind of need to stay in action. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and find when we've taken a step back or anything, how to how to hold ourselves accountable. Yes. And there are so many different avenues of DEI work that there may be some that we're, you know, pretty good at and we're advancing in. And there may be some that we haven't really started yet or haven't really gained the momentum that we would hope for. Um, and that's because there are so many different people. There are so many different voices. There are so many different communities that require a different way of interacting or a different level of awareness. Um, and I think we're going to kind of constantly be in that process of figuring out, oh, we didn't think about this, you know, group, or we thought we were good with this group and got feedback and now we need to change course. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of like you said, that that constant momentum and movement that DEI work takes to to get anywhere. Yeah, I think that the the kind of agency and the personal journey, they, they mimic each other and they have parallel process at times. And I think like when any person uh, builds awareness, that initial awareness is not comforting. You know, that initial awareness kind of exposes you. So as we do the work and we're willing to get awkward and and fail and, and, and stumble, you know, we'll find that we've we've really, like you said, been doing some things great this whole time. Uh, we're making great strides and, and we've been missing things and we've been doing the wrong thing. And I think that's the difference between, you know, people who are successful in this and not is probably pe- how people sit with the fact that they haven't been doing well. You know, again, some people who haven't been doing well are going to go into that fragile state and just start defending themselves. Um, you know, intention versus impact. They're going to say, I did not mean to do the wrong thing where we know people have had the wrong thing done to them, they, they need it acknowledged more than anything else. And you can always double back to your intention 
and get your intention established when you've built up the relationship as, of, of like, I'm, I'm not going to do this to you anymore. So you just talked about some of our shared agreements in DEI. One of them is what you just talked about. Can you share about what the shared agreements are, um, where we can see them in the agency, and, and what that means for DEI work? Yeah, so we have, um, you know, signage up in our offices and stuff so people can can kind of take a look and, and see where they want to do their work. We brought up uh, impact versus intent, you know, to really acknowledge uh, impact. Again, can, you can always double back to that conversation about your intent, but it, it doesn't matter if you're defending yourself right away. You're usually telling the person they're not feeling what they're feeling or they're not going what they're going through. And, and one, one of my, like, tenants as a counselor is I don't argue with feelings. If a person feels that way, they feel that way. Uh, we can always, again, have a logical conversation about intent after the feeling is acknowledged. Um, we have other guidelines such as, you know, it's okay to take a break. You know, it's okay to acknowledge when the conversation is not fruitful or you're not, you're not making a breakthrough and you need to take care of yourself. Um, the disagreements are okay that there's no one person who has all the right answers or has arrived and is the DEI guru or anything like that. Um, assuming good intention, it's one thing to double back and say really assume that everyone's doing their best. We don't know what we don't know. Uh, we don't think we've hired people who are intentionally trying to marginalize or oppress anyone else. So, you know, um, we want to give people the benefit of the doubt, that's staff included. Um, listening for understanding. Uh, not questioning. So to hear people out what their experience is, again, that's the thing that's going to move the work forward is getting, you know, our, our clients and people who live in our housing, they're consumers of our service. So like any other service in, in this in this society, you know, they should be able to say your service works for me because or it doesn't work for me because you guys need to change some things and we can take their feedback and and, and work with it. Um, never stop working on our awareness, our own personal exploration, kind of reach across um, the lines when we don't understand others and, and do work. And yeah. So the shared agreements are posted in every site um, and they're posted with our DEI logo, which can you share what the logo says? It says representation, engagement, impact and lead. So those are the kind of the core tenets of how we're going to navigate this work and how we spend our time thinking about diversity work at Bridges. And we have posters, like you said, in every site that have this equity logo, that have our shared agreements, that talk about our equity statement. Um, and I think it's a cool reminder for, for people, especially, you know, not only for the, the staff and the clients, but also community partners that were committed to this work. And of course, the shared agreements, you know, they might not work for every person, but it is a helpful guideline to think about. It's totally fine to take a break. It's totally fine to say, I'm, I'm becoming overwhelmed um, because this work is really hard. Let me take a break. And as a community, we're saying that's that's totally fine. That's one of our values. We want you to take care of yourself. Um, so I'm really glad that you brought those up because it takes a lot of work to do this work. Um, and we've tried to really think about how to keep people safe and how to get people heard. And um, I think it's really important that 
that we share that on mm-hmm. on Change Talk. I, th- I think you know struggle if you work a forty hour work week or more. You know, I think people understand there's always there's always work and struggle and strife. I think like this is struggling with purpose or identifying a purpose for our struggle and and also realizing when you you'll some things will come easy to you. Uh, some some days you'll make great gains and you'll feel like you know this is really this, I'm I'm getting it you know I'm having breakthroughs and then you'll get feedback that you're not getting it that it's not working and and those are really hard to sit with those days and be like we're struggling with something we're really caught on something some ideological uh, disagreement just keeps coming back up and like that's really the val- most valuable part of the work when you're when you're uncomfortable and um, you're willing to be uncomfortable. You're going to have great gains in this work. Absolutely. So before we started recording, you and your pod here um, were talking about just thinking critically about what does it mean to have a white male come on, um, change talk, and talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And um, I wondered if you could share some of the feedback that you got from your equity pod about why it's important for you to come on and talk about this today. Well, I, I just, I value, uh, I value my equity pod. We've, we've met a couple times and, and, you know, there's diverse life experiences in that group and there's just a lot of wisdom in that group overall. And so, you know, um, I like to talk and I'm okay at it. Uh, and so I, I was kind of nominated to speak for our group, but, you know, I couldn't help but feel because of the nature of what we're talking about that, you know, I had to kind of sarcastically and tongue in cheek say, I don't think the voice missing from the DEI conversation or from any conversation is that of the straight white male. Um, But I was kind of encouraged in a different direction that, you know, um, in various ways I've sat with myself and and done some of the exploration. And so I want to encourage other uh, straight white males or people may have been benefiting from uh, certain privileges or, or socioeconomic status or not, you know, to do their own contemplation and their own work and, and hear other people out. And the feedback from your equity pod was really about how your voice is needed as a person with immense privilege and where you sit, um, that your voice does matter in this context and you have a role in allyship what does that mean? What does allyship mean? Or what does it mean to be an ally, particularly within this, you know, difficult work? Well, I think along the same lines of like, you you don't know what you don't know. I think there are certain things that once you see and internalize them and, and really understand, you can't unsee them. And, and, you know, you could do nothing at that point, but I don't think, you know, for the people that I know and work with in this social justice movement, I don't think any of them could see what they've seen and know what they know and not be pushed into action. So I just want to say, you know, we are where we are. You know, this society obviously still has a lot of struggles Um, and us in social work. You know, there's a lot of wounded healers in the group and people who've done their own, uh, had their own struggles in life, but we're, we're really called to do this. And so I think allyship is, again, finding out who's not getting as much out of life as you and, and trying to even the, the playing field. Um, yeah, that's the best way I could put it. How would you encourage people, not only employees with Bridges, but community members to get involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion work, especially if they feel uncomfortable, if they um, 
maybe are in a place where they're feeling defensive or they're feeling targeted, um, how would you encourage and, and uplift them? Well, first of all, I say to not undervalue any small act movement or um, you know exploration on their part. And then encouraging people, I think, to really find their their touchiest point, you know, what's most uncomfortable for them to dive into that, um, to do their their personal reading and exploration, you know, kind of finding some ways to just get a sense of the scope. Like I said, for me, I think it was reading some St- Stokely Carmichael book uh, when I was younger and, and going like, oh, that's where the institutional racism term kind of came from and hit home for me um and yeah like i can't say that enough to not to to place a value on really small acts of change and growth because i think when we're in the change and growth business especially doing drug and alcohol treatment here we have to realize that small victories therapy works too you know i am not great at this i am not you know well spoken or perfect but i'm doing better than i did yesterday you know and i'm committed to it what would you say to the Bridges employee who says, I don't need to go to the committee meeting for equity and inclusivity. There's enough people going. Um, I don't need to listen to the podcast. I don't need to read the newsletter um, because there's a lot of other people doing that. I Maybe it's not my top priority. How would you encourage them or what, what would your message be for them? Well, I mean, that'd probably be, for me, it'd be a lot of individual conversation. I'd want to know why it's kind of on the low priority spectrum. But um, just again, if you think of this, we touched on it. If you think of this as a public health issue or a life or death issue, then, you know, some of that casual, all pass uh, nature of the conversation just isn't there anymore, you know, because you're realizing that you've dedicated yourself to helping people. And uh, if you're not helping everyone you could help, you're kind of clashing with your own value system. So I would just bring it up that way. You know, how does this, how, how does not participating uh, support you in your mission to help people? I've noticed that I ask this in every podcast so far. How does DEI work relate to recovery? And I know you, you talked about the public health um, and talked about, you know, it being life or death. But what does that really mean for you when you think about DEI and, and recovery and values of recovery? Well, I think, you know, people have learned over time while uh, treatment and mental health professionals and health care professionals might not, might, people might not all have the same access to that. Addiction has historically not discriminated. Uh, addiction will take anybody from any socioeconomic circumstance. Um, so I think as a recovery uh, value, again, people sitting with themselves, doing their self-exploration and their inventories, I think some of those principles in recovery um, exactly mirror and parallel DEI work because we're asked to take a long, hard look at ourselves and we're asked to do service work. And so I think both of those things are involved in DEI. And there's so much diversity within what recovery means and what recovery looks like for people and how people what recovery might look like to someone might not look like recovery to somebody else. So DEI not only hits on those values and principles, like you're saying, but really is represented within the spectrum of what recovery can look like for people. 
Yeah, I th and I think we have an agency commitment too to honoring a person's values, and so um, to not project, you know, personal recovery onto them, or to say that our goal for them is their goal. We really need to be honoring and hearing what people are, are engaging in our services for, and provide that to them as best they can. And it might not be our version of what the the long-term success looks like, but we need to honor their version. Well, I really want to thank you, Pecos, and your entire Equity Pod um, for taking time out of your busy schedules as leaders today to be here. And I really appreciate your Equity Pod, who I just want to say they're here, they're in the background, um, but and they're here supporting you. I appreciate um, them as well. I think it's a really great highlight of, of what we're trying to do internally and how we're trying to move forward in a different way. So I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thanks, listeners.